Welcome to Compassionate Conversations, a podcast produced by the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Naomi Rosin Kani discussing subjects related to mental health and mental illness. Welcome back and thank you for listening to the third and final part of our conversation with Scott and Maria. We want to remind you that if you feel triggered during this conversation, please stop listening and come back when you feel ready. So, Scott, when we were just talking a little bit about dual diagnosis and how difficult that can be for an adult if they're already coming in with something already, and, and that being very difficult then for them to have to unpack. But you and I had talked a little bit earlier about what was it for you that finally led you to say that, you know, I really want to work on this. I want to be able to unpack this. I want to take a look at it instead of, you know, it, it basically taking you over, right? Mm-hmm. So in this place of just relationship dynamics, right? And the blaming and the projecting of that hurt and pain, what, what brought you to the place of finally going, okay, I'm ready to look at this? Oof. Um, ask the easy questions. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say I noticed I began, even though my mother is the one who told me that, you know, I had to forgive the injury, that was the crux in the beginning of, you know, of the internalization and all that. I buried it. And like I said, it doesn't stay buried. And, but it, I lived with it for 35 years and didn't do anything with it. Um, but somewhere around age 45, 46, 47, it began to manifest itself as anger mm-hmm. and it was anger towards my father mm-hmm. because I ended up having to live with my mother because of their divorce. Um, and she, um, as much as she did, she got custody of me from the courts. And at the time that's, you know, mother got custody. That was the, that was the courts at the time. So you can't go back and change that. And, but in my mind, the anger that started coming out was this wouldn't have happened to me if my dad had just tried harder in the divorce. Mm-hmm. And I realized, no, my dad did everything he could. Now, <clears throat> now I see that. But at the time, that's how it was manifesting. And I pretty much eliminated my mother from my life. And I was ready to kick my father out as well over this. And I got lucky in that my boss introduced me to some personal development stuff and professional development stuff that um, she had gone through and introduced it as doing work. And uh, I did their program. It was a three-day weekend type, uh, I wouldn't even call it personal, professional, high-level development type thing. Um, The interesting part is I got more out of it from the personal side than I did the business side. And in doing everything that I learned and whatnot that weekend, I was staying in a hotel and it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday morning, I'm getting ready to come back home and hop on the train in Chicago to, to Milwaukee, um, shaving. And the thought occurred of, I realized it had been 35 years I carried this. 
And I just, the realization of what a waste. I wasted 35 years of my life. Mm. For what? And um, I mentioned it before, but I'm, I am so glad I was in a hotel because they have these huge water heaters. And mm. I literally sat on the floor in the shower for a half hour and weeped the most gut-wrenching weeps, weeping you could ever imagine. But it was the release, and that was the moment yeah. healing began. That's, that's a brave moment at that point, Scott. It really is, because what I failed to mention, which he just so eloquently put out there with his story, is resentment builds mm, yes. and builds and builds, and that's the stuffing. That's I don't want to feel that. I don't want to go there, but it's in there right. and it's so infectious, right? 35 years goes by and, and, and you just, you're at this place of just on your knees weeping going, what 35 years, what have I done? Right. In, 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 in our world, they can, I think they, they would call that moment, the moment of ripping the trauma membrane, mm-hmm. right? That is where you no longer, I mean, you're not getting just these little pin poke holes anymore, right? Where you right. can hold that back. Okay, I don't know if anybody remembers the little Dutch boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was kind right. of through this, right? You're going to try to hold it back. At this point, that's just like, whew, right? Um, and so I just wanted to say that is incredibly courageous because at that point, there is no holding back. I mean, it's, right. it's very raw and it's so there and mm-hmm. it's so mixed yes. with so much resentment. You're confronted by the reality of something that, yes. that it's there. It has been there, but you might have not to see it before now you're opening your eyes to it and recognize it as part of something that happened which which leads us into again the healing process so as of that moment and you know as the development that you practice what do you do what steps do you take after opening yourself to this uh Mm -hmm. to start the healing process and 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 to do the work of, of healing the, I, I was fortunate, the, again, uh, that my boss introduced me to this, uh, this type of work. And it, it's actually practice. I really have to say it is practice you had. I can't stress enough where if I'd just gone and done this weekend course and stopped, that I wouldn't be here today. Hmm. All right. As far as having this discussion, you have to continue to do the work. Um, the things, I mean... They they call them distinctions. Each one is really just a life lesson that you can learn, and it's a technique that you can use to work through stress or recognize something and how to, in a sense, I, I think I one of the things I came away with in the long run is that, in a sense, so many of the things in my life that were triggers were really my, my frontal cortex reaching into my you know, midbrain fight flight mm-hmm. and the connection was there. So right. when I rethink about the event, right. guess what? That connection's there. And it's gonna say, oh, you're gonna panic again. Right. Um and the, a lot of the techniques I did, they help the they I learned to separate um in a sense we call it from the what so versus the story we get it. Mm. And you know it happens quickly. But it was a technique, and with time and practice, um, it was essentially I, I got a chance to like reprogram these connections and reassign the memory to mm. better emotions. 
Right. You know, the, the ability to give, you know, so instead of I'm thinking about this, you know, I'm thinking about the man, you know, wanting me to touch him, no longer causes the panic. And then the remembering of I was abandoned in this and everything. No, now it is just, okay, this is a guy who liked me to touch him. Right. You, you know, it's that's it. Right. And the panic and the shame mm -hmm. is gone. And that connection is broken. Mm. Yeah, there's a new narrative now. Right. right. Well, actually, there's a narrative. So when it gets stuck in the limbic brain, it's floating out there kind of like a ship without a landing pad. It right. doesn't know where to go. So we get that fight, flight, freeze, spawn. We're, we're in this place. It doesn't know what to do. With the work that Scott has been doing and had done at that point is that he's making that new narrative, the new neural connection of, okay, I, I can remove the emotion here for a second. I can put this narrative. He's not letting the emotion hijack him. Now, I get what I said, that there's emotional regulation in your prefrontal cortex, right. but your limbic brain is where we we process emotion, we feel that. So if you come into something with fear, you're going to feel that fear. You're going to have a hard right. time putting logic and reason to it. Right. You put logic and reason and still had to feel that pain, mm -hmm. but without getting so frightened that it would whip him back. Does that make sense? Right, because now it makes sense. Yes. You, you have an explanation of something that, you know, that, that you had no power over, but now you can make sense out of it. And that helps you reconnect with, or, or, or disconnect from the emotions that that, that trigger and reconnect to new emotions. That, yeah, that, that can be tolerated. Right. And it just it becomes a circumstance right. instead of the pain of everything that would. It is now just, okay, it happened. It doesn't have the same power that it did on you yeah. because now I, it was something that just happened. I, I, I created a saying for myself out of doing this work um, because I, I call it, if you can give that which you can give voice to, Right. loses its power over you. It does. And that is because I could give it voice constantly. I could, and repeating that, that's the doing the work and right. not knowing it or continuing to do the work and continuing to repeat it, the power went away. And it was now a circumstance instead of an, an actual overwhelming event. Mm. Yeah. Now that's important because um, you, you're talking about who do the work and how that helps in the, in the healing process. But some people don't do the work. Yeah. And what are the consequences of that? I mean, what does that become? Or how does that control you, if it does, in the rest of your life, in, the, in, in your relationships, in your family ties, etc.? Yeah, well, I'm singing to the choir at this point. So, you know, being a <laughs> mental health therapist doesn't mean that I can wave a magic wand and I can fix right. everything. but. You know, the past partner in my life didn't do the work that he needed to do. Right. He did put it out there and it was sat for 40 years before he had brought it forward, which was pretty significant, very much like Scott. Um, however, it was incredibly disjointed. It was out there. The trauma membrane is ripped. Everyone is aware of it. It has caused, it had caused ripples through the family and through the, the surrounding family. Right. A lot of shame. No one knew quite what to do with it. So nobody did anything with it. Mm. And so it sat, and then from my perspective, I'm doing all that I can to bring in the role of a support person, which lends itself to the point of that whole idea, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. Right. It is not and was not my job with my partner to tell him, 
this is the route that you need to go. As you heard from Scott, it is mm -hmm. such a deeply personal experience. And right. I tell my clients, when we do discover something, because sometimes they come into the office for something else, right. and by way of getting to know or an intake, we uncover sexual yeah. abuse. And at that point, I'm like, it is not my job to re-traumatize you because right. it's mm -hmm. not. This right. is such a personal, um, formidable time for them to, when they're ready to step into it. And he wasn't. And those coping mechanisms continue to be one of minimizing, blaming, projecting, the chaos, right. the chaos. And when you're right. trying to be a support person in all of that, it's incredibly maddening and very isolating mm -hmm. right now. There's no blame being put here. I'm saying is that it, right. it takes the work. All I kept hearing Scott say at the end there was I kept working, I kept working, I kept working. Mm -hmm. And you keep working. Yeah. I mean, can, if, can I share? There's some, it just reminded me of something um, rather recent um, as work as part of my uh, volunteer work um, and advocacy of belief they have a 24-hour crisis line that you can call if you're having problems. Mm. I've been doing this for three years, probably 75 shifts over those three years. Mm. And each one of those shifts is a 24-hour shift. You have, a, you have a cell phone in your hand, and you're there, you know, I'm taking calls at 2 in the morning um, because you do this. But I've done this long enough now that I've had an opportunity that there are, are some of the callers who I've worked with or talked to multiple times but in the process of doing the work, I just want to, I mean, it, it does have, if you do the work, it can make a difference. I had one caller, the first time I talked to them, it was actually one of my first calls ever with them, had no coping skills, no strategies, just an absolute, everything was a disaster, and you could tell they were lost. Right. And I was on a shift a week ago, and I got a call from them. And I don't recognize the person I was talking to anymore. Mm. They have done the, it is obvious they are doing the work, but this person now has coping skills. They have resilience. They have, um, and it's just I, I mention it the difference between doing the work, but I also mention it because I you have to realize healing takes time. Right. And I've walked, and I've had an opportunity to talk to this person several times, and I have witnessed the outcome of their healing right. is powerful to see. So, I mean, you have to do the work, but you have to understand it takes time. And that's what I wanted to speak to. That's very important. That's very important. So I think it's great uh, that, you know, you, you have lived experience, so you can support others who are on their process of healing. But what happened to those who want to support or who need to support somebody uh, but do not have the experience. They don't. They, they obviously do not understand the experience the same way. What do we say to them, and how can we, or what tools can we provide for them to help uh, others who have uh, lived this experience? Sure, it, it, it's really important. It's a very valid point because they're not going to be on their own. So if it's a spouse or if it's a child that this is being uncovered and now you have a parent or a spouse that's walking into this with the unknown, it can be very overwhelming for them. I like to call them the ally, right? They're mm -hmm. the allies in healing and all of this. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I personally try to work with them and then the understanding that they too are going to be going through their own therapeutic journey on all of this. Right. Because they're going to be taking on a role of their loved one who's gone through this. It can be incredibly difficult, but I have seen it be one of the most rewarding things for a support person to go through as they watch their loved one unpack all of what they've been through. So this journey is first and foremost is that they need to support themselves. They have to be right. sure that they're taking care of themselves emotionally and physically. And they have those supports set up for themselves, you know, that they're not putting themselves into a codependent role, which sometimes can happen. Mm. If the partners have been together for a long time, they may have established a more of a codependent role to go in and keep saving out of the dysfunctional behaviors that have been there with their partner. Now the partner is willing to walk into this and doesn't want to function that way anymore. Right. We have the ally who's got to go, well, I got to stop reacting that way. Right. So this is where that can be very difficult um, for them to be very observant, make sure that they are self, that they are doing self care. Like I said, but that commitment to be able to share. So I always ask them, like, are you both in this together? Can we get a verbal commitment, right? That right. you're going to grow together through this. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult at best. Plenty of questions. Ask a lot. There's a, there's plenty of great resources out there for the support person to be able to read, for them to be a part of. Um, but recognize that this tends to be the biggest piece I see is that as the survivor is healing, mm. their healing process can often trigger quite a few things in the support person. Right. So a support person might walk in going, hey, I'm your cheerleader, I'm here. And all of a sudden they're going, whoa, I got stuff here that's deeper than just that. So it makes for a really, you know, it can be a stressful dynamic, but it can make for a really wonderful growth experience. I've seen it between couples and what can come out on the end when they really hang in there with one another mm. is just this place of transparency and honesty and healing um, and trust with one another, like this person was there, right? right. And that's how I'm talking one person, but when mm -hmm. you have a family system, now you gotta be working with everybody in the family. Yeah, right, well, because in a way it's causing trauma to everybody. It's not just the person who lived the experience, but now you are living that person's experience it's, in a way, and it's... it's in, a, in some ways too. 100%. Uh, and that probably, it's, I'm, I would feel it's a different dynamic if it's present in a child abuse situation mm. versus let's say it's a husband wife or um, you know partners let's call that i mean to use that let's say right. partners and one partner is assaulted well in reality the actions of one person just assaulted both because right. you destroyed trust you destroyed um uh, you destroyed the dynamic that existed between them and the it has to be rebuilt for both and that is because like i'm so glad you touched on that because in my thinking about what i wanted to say here and stuff one of the things that came out of it for me was the realization that you need that commitment from the other person and then the realizing they're going to change too through this you have to reestablish trust between the two of them because there may be an initial victim blaming that comes from an assault you know, mm -hmm. well, why'd you do this? You know, and that's going to hurt trust and it's going to hurt the process of trying to rebuild. So they, there's so many complex dynamics there. Oh, it's throwing the pebble in the pond. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you're just getting this ripple mm -hmm. effect. Right. 
because if it, if you are having you know that support person come in and they're not the one that's done something that's one scenario okay. it could be a scenario that they are the one that's mm-hmm. done something and so they you know the the survivor has to deal with that and then find additional supports to help them through that if it's mm-hmm. a child that's different you mm-hmm. might have school involved and other you know um, other additional individuals that are in this child's life the the family dynamic can just get really shattered by this and it still comes down to working and sticking with that survivor knowing that this is their narrative and they get to move through this empowerment and possibility of what's in their future on their terms some some people decide to talk to perpetrators some don't if that's the case they want to make sure they have survivors around them this is where it can get really complex but it can also be very debilitating if the survivor chooses not to have support which makes it difficult yeah right like we were talking before i mean this is a common experience and in the commonality of the experiences where we find the healing yeah and again i I want to reiterate about about this person who doesn't leave the experience but in a way gets traumatized by by the other person's experience um because I think that's something that you brought up that, that I believe is, is important. You could ask yourself, why do I want to be the support person? And sometimes you don't have an option. You know, if it is to your partner, you know, it is somebody in your family, you might not be able to say no to be the support person. And then you need to learn quickly what you need to do to support that person. Uh, some people just choose to be that support person. Um, and, and so what is in there that you would say, well, this is why you want to be a support person. Is, you were talking about the healing and the, and the connection. So what are the benefits, you would say? Well, okay, it can be a sneak attack, though, because here's the thing, is that if somebody wants to be the support person, there can be a secondary gain there that might have to do with their own, right. quote, issue, right? right? So codependence can be there, there's no doubt, right? I mean, if, you are, if, if the survivor is in a dysfunctional set, of their own keeping away from emotional vulnerability, for instance, mm-hmm. all right, they're kind of pushing away. You may have a support person that wants to be able to be validated if they can get the person to be emotionally connecting with them. Well, right. what's that all about? So you have one codependent person and you have another person that's emotionally unavailable. And that whole dynamic can get really crazy until, like I said, that survivor is like, hey, I'm ready to stand still. I'm not going to push away, but there's going to take time. So the benefit for that other, for that support person, I should let, let me back up. The support person needs to take a really good inventory of themselves right, right, <laughs> and ask themselves, right. you know, what, what's my purpose and intent here right. to want to support, yeah. right? Mm. Because if, if they're just stepping into this because they, they, they feel that that's going to heal them, yeah, then that they may become not be, the center of the, of the process. They can't, yeah, right. or, or they can hinder the work of the survivor, right. you know, and I like to always say, you know, stay in your own lane. So mm. you got to stay in your own lane and try to get, you got to do your work, right? Stay yep. in your place and do your, because there's just as much work for that support person in a much different way, different capacity as there is for the survivor who's going, I'm going to start unpacking Pandora's box now. Right. You know, because they've been living in Pandora's box right. until this point. So, yeah. In the, yeah. in the realm of today's 
video world. Hi, I'm Pandora. Welcome to my unboxing. No, they kind of unboxing you want to be saying that. Okay. On YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maria, thank you so much for actually talking about the role of the support person and their need for healing because that was kind of incomplete for me as I was trying to do my thoughts. Sure. Um, but I do have a few thoughts about what I would say to a support person um, who, because it's going to, um, I'll just go through them. Um, if you are a, a person who is going to be supporting someone who has been through this, the first thing I would tell you is believe them. Um, the statistics I read in the same website as the other stuff I found, you know, false reporting, yes, does happen. There are people who do this to try and get out or escape mm -hmm. consequences, but the incidence and the rate of false reporting is very low. Um, if someone comes to you, a child or anyone else, and says, this is what happened to me, let me reiterate this, believe them. Um, and then don't victim blame or shame them. I mean, if an, if, if an assault occurred or, you know, how many times have you heard the thing? Well, if, it wouldn't happen if you hadn't gone out dressed like that. Yeah. You know, do not shame them for it. Do not victim blame them for it. They experience something very, very difficult right. to go through. Um, and please do not should them. I think that's the worst word in the any language mm. is should, you know, um, like, well, it's been a year. You should be okay by now. Mm -hmm. uh, or things, you know, should removes the power from the survivor and implies that the other person or the shoulder knows more than you do. And it, that just angers me because healing has no time frame. Healing belongs to the survivor. And, um, and then there's something else this poor person needs to understand. The survivor did not choose this. All right. Someone else hurt your loved one. Mm -hmm. Someone else violated your loved one. Someone else destroyed a part of who your loved one was. And if the survivor wishes to be whole again, they are now forced to do this incredibly hard work of healing and all because of someone else's actions. You need to understand that. Um, and I think one of the other things is don't wish for the old person to be there again. Um, don't say, I just want my wife back, or I want, you know, along those lines. That person no longer exists. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully with, you know, if you do the work and you have support, a new and stronger person emerges. Sure. And that is what the work you were talking to and the, what you can see the growth. So, um, and that is pretty much the thoughts I had. And then I was going to talk about how, you know, um, it's important that the support person have their own journey. And you have touched on so thank you well yeah and i appreciate you you know bringing up the point of view from the survivor mm -hmm. point right to, to talk about this because support people can <clears throat> they can throw a veil over this very quickly especially right. if they have any connection to me who have you know who have done maybe the the abuse right? right and that can be incredibly inflicting for them and to hear scott say that is it, it touches a lot on what i was thinking earlier that if Scott's ready to do this or any survivor is ready to do this, they're motivated. And right. it, and, and right. that's huge because it, it, it mm -hmm. can take a sweep 
just a few words from you who you might think be a supporter in your life that would deflate that motivation so quickly because that shame mm -hmm. is still so raw, right? Mm -hmm. And then this whole idea of that, that, that I'm not there to re-traumatize them. So this idea that he knows or any survivor knows that it's the right thing to do, there's an intuitive to that. There's an intuitiveness. They're like, okay, intuitively, I'm, I'm, I know that there is something right I need to be doing, whether it's confronting family or confronting my perpetrator, whatever it might be. And again, you get the wrong support person or they say something that could be demoralizing like that, that intuitiveness could be like, oh, wait, maybe not. Right. Maybe I shouldn't do this right now, right? And they can go back into that place of safety really, really quickly. But the thing is, is that what I do find is that that trauma membrane tends to get ripped open when they are just so tired of living their life like that. They're just done. They're, they recognize that it's not an authentic you know, they're not authentic and in, right. in how they were created. This this trauma has robbed them in some way. It's a little bit like the aha moment that you were talking about, yeah. you know, in, in the shower, 35 yeah. years. And yeah, the, the membrane went and at that point I knew something. It could, I couldn't go back, and it does not. That membrane could not grow back. Yeah, mm. you're not going to stitch that stuff up. You're not. Mm -hmm. um, on point of, you know, a readiness for yeah. the survivor is, but also being mindful of the flip side. Scott was ready in really many ways. I'm mm -hmm. not hearing that he was going through a divorce or trying to get out of a really bad relationship at the time. Right. He wasn't dealing with any kind of addictions, right. right? These are some of the things that we want to be very, very careful of that as a therapist, you find out because there's or that dual diagnosis would come in. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. we're going to start opening up that Pandora's box right about now when we have to be dealing with the potential addiction of alcohol or drugs that right. might be also layered on. Mm -hmm. We'd want to be very careful. Yeah. We'd want to have a focus and a goal to make sure that would be managed and under control first. That's important uh, because you need to be I mean, you, one thing is to realize that you need the healing and something different is to know that you can heal. I mean, to take mm -hmm. the steps and to be ready to take those steps is a whole different work, which requires energy, focus, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. a lot of willingness to yeah. be able to do that. Yep, that's a good point because the, the leading a horse, so to speak, if you're not ready to heal or you haven't reached the point of uh, I'm exhausted yet, um, it's not gonna happen. I mean, one of the things that in the work that I did, I remember them talking about a, um, they, they had a thing, what's missing that the presence of will make a difference in your life. But the flip side was, I, you know, I, if you're not ready to change, then I assert that you have the life you want. Mm. All right. You're, it's may not be great. It may not, you know, it may, you know, it may suck in some ways, but you are okay with the way things are. And it doesn't make it right or wrong. Just you are okay with, because it's not forcing change. You don't have to get out of those ruts you talked about in the field. You're, it's, you know, you're okay with that. It's when, in other words, I assert that if you live the life you want, and if you're not ready to heal, you're not going to be taking the action to heal. And that is the moment when, like you said, you're tired, the membrane breaks, and it's time to do it. Yeah. And it's not everybody's there. Yeah. 
I, I, there's so many different ways that that point comes yes. for my clients. It, mm -hmm. it just as some walk in and they're like, kind of like Scott, you know what? I had this moment. I'm ready. I've had others come in mm -hmm. and it's because of stress within the family system mm -hmm. or it's something similar that might be going on within the system. Not so much I'm saying of sexual abuse mm -hmm. by someone else, but a dynamic where somebody might be overpowering someone else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've seen that one happen quite a bit. And then the person who's got sexual trauma that's not healed yet, they start getting all sorts of triggers and then they start meddling and then they want to fix because mm. if I can control that, I'll feel better. And it's back right. to wait, yeah, bring yeah. us back here, right? right. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-identity is so fractured, but they are seeing it out there. Mm -hmm. Well, if I can fix that. My hope is if someone is listening to this right now, that that is an indicator for them that they are approaching the point of being ready. And this could be a step on that yes. path. Uh, this is why we called it breath of courage. It's that you took that breath and you stepped into courage. That's what you did. And that's what yes. they all do. You can't force that. That's such a beautiful, independent place of your first step of empowerment is right. I'm here and I want mm -hmm. to look at this. Thank you both again for, for being part of this conversation and for providing your knowledge and insight. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah, you know, as we're talking about healing and the readiness for it and supports, I think it just brings in that idea of healing is a multifaceted approach. Okay, so mm -hmm. we're talking about groups, we're talking about counseling, <clears throat> but there's also many other things that come into play here. It's about your physical health, it is about your mental health, it is about your job, your stress levels, right? right. Your ability to be able to start making changes in different areas. And I have found so many different things that people do, whether it's soothing some soothing themselves with looking, listening to different music, whether they get involved in yoga, whether they're doing mindfulness training, right. um, diet is going to be really very important for them. So there's a lot that can come at them, but to be compassionate, you know, with those who you're working with that are walking into this ring, I mean, it's been a knockout for them, right? Um, and at the same time, to be able to recognize um, the steps that they do take and move forward, it is too easy and you had brought it up earlier, Carlos, that they can fall back. Right. You know, they can go back into those tracks really, really easily. And we call that learned helplessness, right? Mm -hmm. All of the defenses can go up. So as they move through this process, it's meeting them where they're at. And sometimes it's not always going to be about having to unpack the emotional pain. Sometimes it's about, hey, let's go do an art project together, right? right? Mm -hmm. Or, hey, how about I teach you some a couple grounding yoga moves that you can just get in touch with your body you don't always have to be unpacking the hurt and pain it's okay. there and there's no hurry for it so compassion and kindness you know they're going to already have enough long suffering the way it is they've already gotten mm -hmm. to this point so you know coming alongside also takes an awareness and an orientation of the person and persons mm -hmm. that are around them mm -hmm. okay thank you thank you for that maria scott um, well, actually to the listener, if you're here because this is something you've experienced and you're looking for, what do I do? Um, I just want to say to you, I am so sorry for the work that you need to do to heal now because of someone else's actions. And I applaud you for taking the step to do this. 
Um, but also, I thought I'd close with, you know, I am a survivor. And in a sense, what does what was my journey? What did healing kind of look like for me? Um, and I kind of look at it like a two-part analogy. And it's like, it's for me, healing was like trying to walk through one of those carnival mirror mazes that they have. Mm. And you think you see way out. And so you start going that way. And then all of a sudden, thunk, you hit that you hit that wall again. Mm. Um, but you don't give up. And through trial and error and perseverance, you develop resilience. You can get through to the other side of the maze. Um, and the second half of the analogy is that um, in the beginning, all those mirrors that you're looking at and walking through the maze are those kinds of the ones that warp you in the image that you see back. And, you know, um, everything's wrong and there's nothing that's right. But as you do the work of healing um, and you find your way through the maze, the mirrors become less and less distorting. And one day you discover that you are actually seeing yourself again. So I wish to close with hope. And if you're willing to do the work, it can get better. So thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Scott, for this insightful conversation. And thanks to our listeners uh, in the hopes that those of you who are walking the path of healing uh, find it and find the necessary help to get to a better place. This has been Carlos Freck with Scott Kinderman and Maria Bishop. Until our next Compassionate Conversation. Compassionate Conversations is brought to you in a partnership with United Way of Racine County. Thank you for your support. NAMI Racine County is a local affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Our vision is to create a compassionate community where all people affected by mental illness live healthy, fulfilling lives. Naiman Racine County provides advocacy, education, support, and public awareness so that all individuals and families affected by mental illness can build better lives. Visit us at www.namiracincani.org for more information on mental health and related activities.